Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay Anelli, recently promoted to Wojek. I'm Brian Dawes, and I'm an informant whose throat was slashed. I'm Ashley Barrow, and I am a uh, recently demoted Boros Angel. And I'm Lorelai Weissel. And if you don't follow our Twitter and didn't see the news last week, I came out as a trans woman, so... That's a thing that's happening. I'm still doing the show. I took a week off because there were lots of other big life changes involved with that whole thing, and I moved. So I was busy, like, hauling my crap across the East Coast last week, and that's why I wasn't there. But I am back, so now you have to listen to me talk some more. Lucky you. So in news this week, Concepts and Legends released... However, we will be covering it in next week's cast due to the magic story gap for Halloween. On this week's weekly MTG, we learned what the holiday card is for this year. Bog (laughs) Humbug. I always love the puns on these things, although Season's Beatings is still my my absolute favorite. That's only because there's a goblin on it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Mishra's Toy Factory. I will rise you for the goblin stuff, Jay, but um, in that card's defense, it did inspire me to write a piece of fan fiction a couple years ago. Goblins are just really fun to write for. They're great. They're, they're the best. This weekend, the Broken Pact was at TwitchCon, so hopefully you guys saw it and it was a lot of fun. It's been great so far, so good job, Ruben, and keep it up. The last piece of news we want to talk about isn't really news, but an article from Sam Keeper over at Cool Stuff Inc., Full disclosure, I also publish at Cool Stuff Inc. Full disclosure, I have browsed Cool Stuff Inc. (laughs) Full disclosure, I have a lot of customer relation points at at Cool Stuff Inc. (laughs) 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 Sam does some really good deep dives into not just Magic's lore like Beer and Boar does over at Multiverse and Review. But she does coverage of the company relations as well. And production histories. She's done a couple articles recently about the way magic produces its story. Sam's tone is sometimes acerbic, as she herself describes. But I think this is a really good history and really gets into why a lot of Vorthos are frustrated with the return to novels rather than being excited by it, which, you know, it's it's a problem, but it's a problem because there's been a history there, especially with the novels, where we are told the books are doing great, only for two years later, the novel line to be canceled. We hear behind the scenes they couldn't give out signed copies of the novels at a GP or at a, a convention or something. And that, like, only one out of every 10,000 Magic players bought it, it is concerning because a lot of fans rightly want to know what has changed since then that we think these new novels are going to succeed. Now, we've been clear, we want these novels to succeed. I really hope they do well and that they're very well written. Uh, I'm hoping the quality is going to be much higher than the last couple novels (laughs) that we got. Not the ebooks that were written by Doug and Jenna, but Quest for Karn and In the Teeth of a Coom. I should note, though, the title of her article is a bit of a misnomer because Dungeons and Dragons novels sell well. 
And it's kind of weird how that happens, because Wizards of the Coast has, you know, essentially these two major flagship products, and one side can't sell a book to save their life, at least historically. The other side has entire shelves at bookstores full of tie-in novels and things along those lines. Part of it might be Dungeons & Dragons is inherently more of a narrative game. If you're playing it, you're interested in narrative, which isn't necessarily true with magic. But still, it's curious how one side of the house has had no problems selling books. Maybe not the 4th edition books, but... (laughs) But the story novels, or at least enough that they haven't been cancelled and they've been going pretty strong for over a decade. Dungeons and Dragons also has some really good fandom ambassadors right now, both with Stranger Things and like everybody watch Stranger Things, including me, and um podcasts like The Adventure Zone, Critical Role are also really good. A lot more people who engage in fandom are into Dungeons and Dragons, but that's just recently. Yeah, as someone who's been a big reader of the R.A. Salvatore novels, which are the Dritz novels from the D&D universe, as well as a huge Critical Role fan, Dice Camera Action on the D&D channel, like, it's, it's very strange to see the disconnect between the two different brands as far as their connection with their, their reader base. And I don't feel like the D&D books give much more publicity than the Magic books, but... I think the the big difference is there's a continuity with their authors where Magic has had this thing where they jump around with authors a lot, whereas a lot of the D&D storylines are championed by one author each, and like those authors have been given a lot of free reign to a certain extent with their novels. I don't know. It's, it's, it's really strange, and I'm looking at my bookcase full of Bob Salvatore's books, and... <laughs> I mean, I still have all the magic books, or most of them anyway, but it feels like it's a very different thing, even though they're in the same building over in Renton, Washington. Jenny also reads the, the D&D books, and she's always talking to me about them, and I don't really listen, but she loves them. <laughs> she's a lot more into it than me. You know, part of it might be that the D&D books aren't tied to a product cycle like magic is. You know, they just can release books and can release them when they're ready. Whereas, even at the height of Magic's novels, they had a pretty short window of turnaround time, and there were always differences between what appears on the page and what appears in the cards because of the time frame that these had to get worked on, and when the book has to go to print versus when the set is finally done. And we just wanted to point this article out today because this is not something that's a unique criticism from Sam's voice. This is something that we have mentioned on this show before. It's something we have mentioned on Twitter before, just in conversation with other Vorthoses, that Magic has this real problem with novels. And they didn't seem to solve it before, and Now all these new people are coming in and trying it again with no signs that they've solved it now. It's just very confusing, and we'll see how it goes. We'll wish the best for it. Let's move on to listener questions. Our first question comes from at MageBlade02 on Twitter. If Liliana does become possessed by Limduel, what becomes of Liliana? From a speculative point of view, she's one of Wizards' more popular characters. Here's what I have to say about that. If they don't kill off Liliana, if she becomes possessed by Limduel, 
I imagine it'll be a situation very similar to Jaya when she was possessed by Mersul, because Mersul and Limdul are essentially the same person. Go back to our Ice Age podcast if that is confusing to you. We explain that in detail. It is a, a long and complicated story that I won't get into now. But yeah, the answer is I don't think Wizards is afraid of killing off a main character. They killed off Elspeth before, but they had a trapdoor to potentially bring her back. We've already seen new art of Elspeth in the Underworld. And, you know, they could do something similar with Liliana in that case, or it could just work like it worked before, where the former personality is kind of pushed aside while Limduel slash Marisol takes control. And then she could still be fine. I mean, Jai is fine. So our next question comes from at WolfieStar123. WolfieStar says, So I was re-listening to some of the old Rav stories, and in the Great Concourse, the Perrin of the Selesnia said that they need to build an army to fight and defend against the plotting dragon. Could the dragon be Bolas rather than Niv-Mizzet? No, it was Niv-Mizzet the whole time. Dragon's Maze is specifically about Niv-Mizzet. If they were intending to bring Bolas to Ravnica then, it would have been a very pie-in-the-sky thing, I think, honestly. The thing is, Niv was also plotting to take over Ravnica. He had intended to seize the power of the Living Guild Pact for himself, or at least for his guild. That's why he was having Ral explore the implicit maze, and why he was pretty angry that Jace got it. <laughs> so it seems unlikely that it would have been Bolas in that scenario. Rip Melik, and it's almost as if dragons always want power. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, Niv-Mizzet is, we should be clear, I like the character a lot, but he's not a good guy in that kind of way. If if Niz could seize control, he, he would. And that's been pretty clear in both Ravnica sets. Has there ever been anything to imply that he's like a good guy? No. <laughs> no. He's not evil. He's just, he's not a good guy. He's on his own. He's on his own side. He's a dragon. Our next question comes from our good friend, Flavorical. Dave asks, my question is this. If you were to continue that concept, and by that concept he means the SDC promos where the new Planeswalkers are standing in front of stained glass of old Planeswalkers, beyond just the Gatewatch to include more modern Planeswalkers, which Planeswalkers would you choose, and who would be their old Walker counterparts? And as an example, he says, like Dovinban and Azor in the background. So I would pick Bolivar in the background with Dak Faden in the foreground, because they're two of my favorite planeswalkers ever. They both have very, not similar personalities, but neither of them have let being a planeswalker go to their head, so to speak. And while they play it being a rogue, they have a serious hero's heart underneath all that. Mine would be directed at maybe six people. I would have <laughs> Temio standing in front of Ram, confident that she is actually a good mother. <laughs> so mine would be in the universe where Brandon is a planeswalker. It would be him and Jaya because she was also his tutor. But it's in the universe where he's a planeswalker too. It's got to be in the AU. <laughs> I mean, he was a kid last time we saw him, so he's still got time. Brian, do you have one? If we're reusing Planeswalkers, I'm going to reuse Jaya, and the person in front of her would be Jessica. Straightforward, not caring about other people's perspective, Jaya. Burning away the impurities of the world, or the Zalfirs of the world. 
funny that we would both pick Jaya and that she's one of the actual ones from those promos because she's like not a good role model, <laughs> despite now being a teacher. She's great. She's gotten better at least. I mean, she's the best role model, but she shouldn't be. I could put Dak Faden in front of Jaya because before Dak, Jaya was the greatest thief in the multiverse. <laughs> Some might argue she still is. She stole the whole freaking monastery. <laughs> um, Chandra's probably the worst because when she tried to steal the scroll, she ended up blowing up the museum and killing everybody and then releasing the Eldrazi. So she gets the title as the worst. See, if I was going to put Jessica in front of somebody, I would probably put it in front of a stained glass thing of Corona because I'm a terrible person. <laughs> Why? Why would you do that? First off, she's not a planeswalker. Second, that's, that's good. That's good. I like that. I don't know. Corona planeswalks in the novel. Moving on. <laughs> Our next question is from at Bross, And I apologize if I butchered that name. Uh, the question is, I know it's a constant topic of discussion in the enfranchised community, but on the wings of C-18 featuring Yuriko, there have been some slight indications that a compromise could be reached between the old Kamigawa fans and Wizards of the Coast, resulting in a new Kamigawa as a reimagined Japan world. What do you think about a potential return? So, I should note, we've, we've seen Kamigawa a couple times in the modern story, only kind of from the sidelines, like very, very small glimpses. But what I should say here is that it's still unlikely to get a set, but that the current story direction means we don't have to have a set to return to Kamigawa in the story. So we might see Kamigawa again sometime, but it's more likely to be something like the Chandra comic, where it's a story that isn't necessarily associated with a card set to go along with it. Or even just web fiction, that was part of Blake's article a couple of weeks ago about some of the new paradigm for magic storytelling is they are going to experiment publishing some short stories that aren't specifically tied to a product or a card set. And that means they can publish all the Kamigawa stories they want and give Kamigawa fans their Kamigawa stories without the pain of having to rebuild a Kamigawa world in a car set, because that's not going to happen. I have a whole separate rant for why you can't reimagine Kamigawa as generic Japan world, and it's not going to happen here. Boo. I would love to go back to Kamigawa because I actually enjoyed the story there. Judge me all you want, but I, I did enjoy it. Even if they were to go back in part of the core set, and I'd be happy with some ninjas and or samurai. But hey, you know what? I'll take what I can get. Just give me something. Moving on to this week's magic story, Clans and Legions. Which, at first glance, I thought it was a reference to the Gruul in the Boros. But it turns out it's a reference to a game played on Ravnica. So the story begins in Sunhome Annex 4 which is a place where basically the rejects of the Boros get sent. It begins with Osset Weslin, a female Ordrun Minotaur who was just promoted to Wojek. That's interesting. The way this is phrased, I'm not sure if it's clear that Wojek is a different branch of the Boros, not really a rank you can achieve in the Boros, but I'm just taking it as she was assigned as a Wojek from like general infantry, and that was something that she wanted. Right, it's like being promoted to the SWAT team from a regular police force. Not really a promotion because you're in a different part of the organization, but 
it's still an upward movement. Her boss is Sergeant Scormac, who is a flamekin who did not burn out in the battlefield and has kind of been moved over here because the Boros likes to ignore the fact that they are summoning intelligent sentient beings and that sometimes they just don't conveniently go away at the end of a battle. Yeah, that answered a question I had in our episodes about the guilds. We've never really seen the Flamekin appear in the stories or learn much about them, but this answers the question that they are absolutely people. So Scormac hands Weslin a encoded note, which Weslin takes to mean she's been assigned to Wojek Counterintelligence, and she deduces from it that she has this location to go to on the rubble belt that is full of, like, ground dragon bone that gets into everything. It's like this this special kind of dust. She says that it's like the bone is not totally dead. Can I just say a few words for you? Skyrim. <laughs> Fusroda. So we also meet a penitent angel who's been assigned to Annex 4, Arasan, which, I don't know, is that how you guys pronounce it? Arasan, yeah. Arasan, all right, close enough. You got one, Jay. Yeah! We learn Arasan had gotten 15,000 people killed about 30 years ago and was made into a penitent angel a lot like Feather. So what being a penitent angel means is that her wings are bound and she is forced to walk around and exist as basically a human. I love that she's the office nemesis of Weslin, though. It's like Jim and Dwight. <laughs> and Weslin's kind of Dwight. Thank you. That's exactly what I was thinking because I've been binge-watching The Office. <laughs> we also learn about Weslin's abusive father, who was a member of the Boros, who sounds like he had PTSD, and the Boros probably doesn't have very good mental health care. All of Nikki's stories have been really grounded and have been kind of realistically dark. This whole section talks about, like, domestic abuse against her mom, and they used to fight, and she would have to hide in her room, and, like, this this is, it's real. This is real crap. It just makes these stories feel so resonantly existent in the real world, but it's Ravnica, and they're minotaurs. Our friend Shivam had a great tweet about this last week, where it's, the perfect blend of high fantasy and realistic noir that makes both of those identities resonate off of each other. These stories are just so grounded and the characters feel so deep on such little characterization in a short story. It's really impressive and I have really, really been enjoying the way that Nikki discusses character and paints a picture of this urban setting. So the guilds on Ravnica are all uniquely terrible, and that's the whole point, that, like, you know, individually they're just, like, a horrible system. You know, we see, like, the mass destruction of the plane, you know, stuff constantly getting smashed apart, but it's hard to quantify the damage that the guilds do when it's something so unrealistic like that, like stuff just being constantly blown apart. So it's hard to quantify the damage that the guilds do, but then when you see stuff that's, like, so realistic and so personal on, like, a, you know, on a personal level, then you could really quantify um, just how badly the guilds treat people within them and outside of them, too. It is very intimate, which is part of what makes it uncomfortable. So there's a great reference to Arasan being a Razia copy here, 
Razia being the Perrin and original guild leader of the Boros. I thought that was pretty cool. That's a little bit of lore that not everyone was aware of that has carried over from the original Ravnica. Weslin follows the clue that she was given in that note to that this gruel encampment on the rubble belt covered in that dragonbone dust I was talking about. She ends up paying for a little urchin's stolen f- fruit or bread or something like that. The currency that comes up again is Ziggs. So again, I don't know if it's Ziggs was meant to be Zibs with a B, but it doesn't really matter because I like the idea of Ravnica having more crazy currencies because it would make sense for a place like this. She meets with an informant there named Brazer and plays this game of clans and legions with him. Clans and legions seems like fantasy chess, which I thought was really weird because the Promise End established that regular old chess exists in the multiverse. I thought it was like shoots and ladders. Well, it was like a four-dimensional board. It was like a cube board. So I think that's what sets it different from chess itself. Uh, Hence, fantasy chess. (laughs) Brazer wants Weslin to release a prisoner from the Boros prison of Wargate in exchange for the identity of a Boros spy. Weslin has the kind of moment of doubt about this because she very much wants her job to be black and white, you know, justice and injustice. But as she's thinking through it, she realizes that, you know, there's a lot of injustice inherent in the Boros, which I thought was nice. And a lot of it is the kinds of things that are inherent with, say, law enforcement in general. There are problems with law enforcement. It's not just heroism, there's injustices in the system as well. And Weslin's internal monologue is really interesting, and that was part of my favorite, one of my favorite parts of the the story. The track that she takes to make all of her decisions is really interesting to me, and I I really enjoyed that. Damn you, Nikki Drayden, for writing a cop character I actually like. (laughs) I like it a lot because... Weslin feels true to the Boros that were set up in the original Ravnica novels. She feels more like a Wojek who would be serving alongside Agris Koss back in the original novel. Because Agris himself was a victim of, you know, clearly post-traumatic stress and, and other issues going on with him from, from his service. Weslin bribes this one criminal free, only to realize the criminal is related to a more infamous criminal who had murdered like a dozen people and injured a hundred or so others with a essentially terror attack. And she's feels really conflicted, goes back to Brazzer to see if she can get the information and finds him dead outside of uh, where she had met him before. So she decides that she absolutely has to report this and along the way She's intercepted by Arison, and Arison gets, for once, serious with her when Weslin states that she's going to report a murder. She's like, oh, I'm sorry, like, let me not keep you from that. And soon after, Weslin herself is accosted by another Minotaur, Boros, and her giant partner. It was a giant, right? Yes, they were guards at the main building of Sunhome. So she's arrested for acute poisoning of her boss, Sergeant Scormack, and the Sergeant Scormack's boss, and that Boros's boss. 
she discovers pretty quickly, she notices some stains, not stains, some marks on the boots of... No, no, they were definitely stains. Okay. Stains on the boot of the other Minotaur from this baby Hydra patch <laughs> that had spit acid. Yeah, you heard that one? Yeah, as you said baby Argent Screens, that was awesome. Is that a baby Hydra? Uh, that was not a baby Hydra in the background. That was a, that was a baby J. Uh, baby and Ellie. All right. <laughs> so she deduces pretty quickly that the other Minotaur must be on, in on the plot. Arasan intervenes just in time and casts like a healing spell to show that the dust on this other Minotaur is in fact the dust from this dragon bone district that the other Minotaur had no business being. So they quickly learn that Scormax survived the poisoning and the only reason that someone would have done this internally was to advance within the Boros. So they go and they confront Scormac, and Scormac has a great monologue. Scormac has a great monologue where you kind of empathize with him a bit because of the way they are so marginalized by the Boros. And it does kind of echo, you know, real world racial problems with law enforcement. But Scormac is, is still a villain and <laughs> he ends up getting put out by a water elemental which I thought was hilarious. Cool motive, still murder. Talk about insult to injury. This guy's a fire elemental, and they put a water elemental in his office in case something gets on fire. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that was the story. I think we've already talked a lot about how we enjoyed it, but does anyone want to add anything about their thoughts on this before we move on to speculation? It was interesting because after the first two stories ended in kind of depressing ways... I was expecting this one to go horribly wrong at the end, and it just kind of ended up being a straightforward, corrupt cops noir story. So that was a different tone than the others, so I enjoyed that, and enjoyed that Nikki was able to make a happy ending, as happy as a story where, like, three people get murdered can be. And where the villain has a empathetic motive. Again, Nikki knocks it out with knowing how to frame her stories in a way where people are highly relatable. And you can see where all the characters in the story are coming from in their actions. And I really appreciate the fact that Arasan wasn't just going to, like, when Arasan vanished on Weslin when they were approaching Sunholm to report the, the murder, I was expecting Arasan to betray Weslin. Like, as soon as she disappeared, I was like, well, there that goes. Or even worse, to be in on the plot. I'm glad that ended the way that it did, and I continue to love how Nikki frames these stories with just making us understand the, you know, the motivations of the people of this plane. So let's move on. Is Arasan Feather in disguise? I'm gonna say no, but I mean, it's possible, but not likely. I think a lot of the people who think it is are wishful thinking, including me. Um, I, as soon as there's an angel in the story, I'm like, yes, please be better, please. But I don't think she is because timeline stuff is not correct. She could be lying. It would just be kind of weird if she was lying. Not that people don't lie in stories, but that it would just make the story a little more confusing. It would also be weird for her to be lying about a massive death event from 30 years ago that people would definitely still remember like that's very easily verifiable so also what stuck out to me is that feather tries to get along with people she likes her job 
despite being a disgraced angel, she, you know, she takes her job seriously. She's kind of peppy and optimistic, and she gets along with people. And this angel's kind of mean. She's very antagonistic, and that just... And again, a lot of time has passed. I mean, this could be feathered, maybe. Her personality has just drastically changed, but it's just weird for characters' personalities to drastically change. So my take overall is it's possible, but I don't think so, and I don't really want it to be, because I want Feather to be nice and funny and the quirky angel we know and love. Yeah, I think we should mention as well that I think people want more from these stories because we're not getting a Guilds of Ravnica like main plot story. So they're overthinking the baby who, you know, teleported. (laughs) They're overthinking the rift in the last story. And they're overthinking this other penitent angel, which there would be other penitent... Stop it. There would be other penitent angels. It's never Merit Lage. But you have no problem when we try to say that everything is Feather, right? It is funny that I'm saying this isn't Feather. When normally I, everything I would say is Feather. That, that's Feather. Points at a rock. That one's Feather too. Um, but this is not Feather. Okay, but what if each of these stories has an important hint about a thing that is important? I hope What so. if that baby is important in a future story? Where did that rift come from in the Is It story? Merrill H! I hope so, because I kind of don't want this. I don't think that, like, little stories are wasting time, but I wouldn't want to spend all this time on these stories that don't overall have an effect on the main plot. What happened to Baz Solvar, the gruel terrorist that was released from prison? She is still out there. They don't deal with that. Stories, very specifically, especially short stories, don't give more information than they need to be contained within their story. So I have been paying attention to what doesn't get resolved, what don't we know, what doesn't get explained. We might be seeing things being set up for the future, little tiny details that might come back, even if it's just in other of these short stories. Maybe they do get tied together into the main Ravnica story in the third set later. Chekhov's cruel. I mean, hey, Lorelai, I mean, she doesn't necessarily have to be just because her relative is a terrorist doesn't mean she is i mean if jenny had done some sort of crime would you just assume i was involved you're twins so yes <laughs> <laughs> that backfired i walked into that one well assuming that they're not me and jenny because me and jenny are like that <laughs> well so so boz was arrested for something and imprisoned for something Will we see her again? Maybe the Gruul story in Ravnica Allegiance will be about her or involve her. Maybe she will appear in another story. I don't know how all this is going to fit together. I'm interested. And with a noir setting, I feel a compulsion to investigate those little mysteries and pull those threads. And maybe the whole sweater come apart. And now we're just in a Weezer song. I think it would be interesting if each of these stories tied into a Ravnica Allegiance story, like the Simic mage who modified the character from the Izzet story. Maybe they're a main character of the Simic story in Ravnica Allegiance. Maybe this Gruul criminal is in the Gruul story next time. So we'll have to see. So as y'all know, um, Gruul's my favorite guild right now. And I think... That what really stuck out to me in this story is that her totally kind of 
racist view of them when she went to go see them. Like, she thought, these guys are just awful. Like, well, they're poor. And she's judging this little girl who's stealing food. My first thought would be, oh, no, a little girl doesn't have food. Um, I like that next time she sees her, she pays for it. But the first time, she's angry. And I think that really shows that people's first thought when they see the girl is not, oh, no, they're they're poor. They have terrible lives. It's, oh, it's those barbarians. And they're all criminals. I think that's leading up into the main Ravnica story, where we're going to see where they get to the tipping point, where they're not going to accept that anymore. And again, it's just kind of sad to see the conditions they live in, where they're starving. And they actually, they are, they're very poor, and they live in the crappiest part of the city, and nobody really feels sorry for them or cares. We've already seen the revolutionary flavor text from Domri and Ilharg the Raised Boar. So this seems to feed into the idea that the oppressed gruel are finally going to start punching back very hard, probably with some help from Bolas. And, and like with these stories, we're seeing why it's not just because they have terrible lives. It's because they have terrible lives. And not only do people not care, but they sort of blame them for it. Like they think this is how they choose to live. And no one really has any sympathy for them. It's kind of realistic in that the only gruel people see on a regular basis are the poorer, weaker clans that hang out kind of on the fridges of regular Ravnica society to survive, rather than be out deep in the rubble belt like the stronger clans. You have to be tough to be a gruel. Ari Levich, who used to work in Wizards R&D, who's now over on the D&D side, has been doing a series on the D&D Twitch streams called Lore You Should Know. We're probably going to talk about them more later, and I guess I can start linking to them this week. But he's been talking about all ten of the guilds, so there are some interesting little details about the Ravnica Allegiance guilds that we didn't know yet. One of the things he's talked about with Gruul is they sometimes come into the city, but most of them stick to the rubble belts. They don't like going into the city. They really only do so for some limited trade or some entertainment purposes or to, like, start knocking stuff down. So the rest of Ravnica doesn't actually interact with them much. That is absolutely a point where the other nine guilds have this mental image of what the Gruul are like because they don't actually care to spend time with them and get to know them. And they don't see that out in the rowboat. They actually, you know, they have their own culture. They have a whole society out there. And it's, you know, it's really wild and rough, but that's intentional because those are things that they value. The other thing that this story points out really subtly is that the girl are often used by other guilds to achieve their ends. This happens in the secretist Rurikthar is not there for his own goals. He's just there because Jace is paying him. The little girl in this story, she ends up being part of the whole scheme, but it's not like she's a conspirator. She's just a little girl who they pay to plant poison. So it shows that the girl often get blamed for stuff that they didn't, that wasn't even their plan. They just get involved. Speaking of which, I hope that little girl's okay now that I think about it. Yeah, I was worried about the little girl. Did they tie up loose ends? That little girl's a witness. All Lucins have got to be exterminated. That is the demure way. No, they're going to come to her house to, like, you know, take her out. But then, like, her giant pet pig just comes in and eats him. And she's like, get up, Fluffy! And then they just, just destroy him. <laughs> <laughs> Lorelai, it's funny you mentioned that lore you should know thing. Because that kind of goes back into Sam Keeper's article. 
I didn't know those videos existed. Yeah, someone pointed them out to me, because I don't follow the D&D stuff. Someone asked, it might have even been on our official Twitter account, it might have been on my personal one. So someone had asked if I had watched them yet, and I said, I didn't even know these exist. But I did watch, there's, there's three videos so far. Two of them are about half an hour each, and the first one is about 50 minutes, because Ari talks about four guilds, and then each of the others are two guilds each. So he's talked about eight guilds so far. I haven't checked in a couple days to see if they have done the last two yet. So I guess I will absolutely link to those, because they are good. Y'all should watch them. It's, it's our job, basically. Really interesting. Lots of good discussion about the guilds themselves and how they interact a little bit and some good details about the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, the D&D book itself, because that's really what they're pushing here. And Ari is just great to listen to. Ari's great. He is one of the primary people responsible for getting dwarves into Kaladesh. He's a big dwarf fan. Worked on magic for a number of years. I'm glad that he's doing well over on the D&D side. So let's move on to final thoughts. For me, thinking about it from this podcast and this discussion, it occurred to me how emblematic the Ravnica D&D book is to a lot of the old problems that Wizards had, especially with Vorthos stuff. Because, not that it's a bad thing, I think it's great, but the reason something like this didn't happen sooner is because there was just a pervasive culture that you can't cross the streams of D&D and MTG. And then, I forget whose quote it was, I think it was James Wyatt. Finally, they all realized all the people who thought that way were gone, but they were still operating as if that was the status quo, that was what the directive was. So, I wonder as well if part of what's changing with the books is that some of that conventional wisdom that doesn't really make sense, something pervasive to the culture, maybe that's changed and they're ready to, to try again in a new environment. And I hope it does what those novels do well. Well, Jay, you and I have personally seen stuff with the Wizards of the Coast relationship with MTG Salvation, which you formerly did a lot of stuff with and, and I'm still doing some stuff with. I was the God King, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was my official title. <laughs> the point is that the fact that our articles have been featured on Daily MTG and that we got a preview card for Dominaria for the website is unheard of. MTG Salvation was blacklisted by Wizards of the Coasts because of a whole leak preview card thing that happened during Time Spiral. There were legal battles fought. It was a mess. So sometimes you just need regime changes and things change. There's a Mark Rosewater article that doesn't mention MTGS, but talks about the leak in detail, and we can link that to the uh, to the cast. Oh, I don't want to link that. <laughs> it's not that exciting history. You, you just need to know that there were some serious preview leaks and legal things happened, and Watsy hated MTGS for a very long time, and things are better now. The people who were involved in the whole thing on both sides don't exist at either group anymore and that's sometimes that's just what it takes to make change happen i thought you were gonna say they don't exist anymore and i was gonna be like what ulamog what? got them they were sent to the shadow realm lorelei is that gonna count as your final thoughts or did you have something else no i have better final thoughts more wholesome final thoughts so 
like I said at the beginning of the episode, so I, I realized I'm a trans woman and then had to move very quickly and lots of things happened. And really none of this would have been possible without a lot of the friendships and connections I've made through the magic community. That magic is subtitled The Gathering is never truer than when people in our community need each other and need to help each other and reach out and belong together and flex the strength of their friendships. I'm just very grateful for the people I have met through this game. It just means a lot to have a lot of people who care about me and to care about a lot of other people in this community as well. I'm just very grateful for Magic and the people it's introduced me to. And that is the nicest thing I'm ever going to say about anybody ever on this show. That's it. You you got my wholesome moment. We've reached peak Weissel niceness. We're not allowed to be nice in here anymore. Magic's great. The people are great. The people are so much more important than the game. All right, Brian, final thoughts. My final thought is that, you know, I've been spending a lot of time looking at the my bookshelf. And, you know, I, I really hope that Watsi has thought through their book release process this time and that they're actually able to support it long term because I've been a huge fan of a lot of the Watsi products on the D&D side Ed Greenwood, Bob Salvatore and all the other authors Dragonlance included, all this, all that stuff and just like, I want Magic to have that kind of thing, I also want them to have that kind of following, even if it isn't strictly for the game, I would love for there to be a lot more fan fiction and story that goes along with it and that that it's cohesive and it's coherent and i wish them all the best and i really hope that they can get it on track this time and keep it on track so the vortex community is able to flourish the way that the game like the spikes and all the other player profiles are able to flourish in their own in their own way so that's my final thought okay um my final thought is other than hi arjun i i love you (laughs) (laughs) most of arjun is actually going to be edited out so for the listeners arjun is making a lot of noise right now (laughs) he's gone back to attacking his mother so it's okay my real final thought is since i'm in college right now most of my meals consist of monster energy drinks ramen noodles and eggs the best ramen noodles is you like cook it for about two minutes you um get another cup crack an egg in it and beat it in there and then you slowly drizzle it over and then you scramble the eggs and the noodles, and then you add um, a bunch of butter, and the butter makes it so good. And then you add, like, pepper and seasoning and everything else, and it is so good. And that's my college recipe for you. <laughs> that is like a, uh, a a very, very ramshackle pad thai is what it sounds like. Yes. And you can also put, like, vegetables and stuff in it. It's good. All right, Arjun, do you have any last thoughts? Do you want to say something? No? You're going to be quiet now for the first time? Arjun is quiet. That's a miracle. Um, If you would like to hear more of Arjun and get him to talk more, you can visit patreon.com slash thevorthoscast and help support our show and support the Get Arjun to Talk More fund. Actually, now that I say that, I made the joke, but there should really be a tier where we, like, we should do a goal sometime like that. That's, I'm filing that away. We'll, we'll do something fun like that sometime. Um, But for real, if you support us on Patreon, you can get access to our Discord community, where Vorthos is from around the world, 
get to talk with us and each other and geek out about magic stuff and have a community with lots of fantastic and funny and wonderful people in it. So whether you listen to our show regularly and are already supporting us, or if you're a newer listener and would like to support us more, we appreciate everyone who donates at Patreon. All right, Arjun, can you say, it's never Merit Lage? Merit <laughs> Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.